0: Well I remember back when Emily and I's first child Sarah was born and like many of you may have felt if you have children you hold your first child we were scared out of our minds. To, to kind of rewind a little bit, Emily and I had just gotten married. Uh, it was October, we went on a wonderful honeymoon and the honeymoon was three weeks long. It was fantastic. We came back, uh, we're standing there in our teeny tiny little apartment a month into marriage in the teeny tiny bathroom in our teeny tiny apartment that had mold on the ceiling and you know just wasn't the greatest place to be in the whole world. And we're standing there a month into marriage looking at a positive pregnancy test. And we were scared because we were just learning how to be a husband and wife to each other. And now it's been nine years. We're still figuring that out. And now all of a sudden the Lord's put this burden on us. I'm giving you a child that you're responsible for, for taking care of your life is now in your hands. And we thought, Lord, we don't have the skills to, to do this. God, don't let us... Mess this up. And so we got on our knees and prayed. We don't often pray on our knees. We got on our knees then and prayed that the Lord would help us. And we went to classes at the hospital and learned how to change diapers and how to give them a little bath in the sink. And we learned all about discipline and read all kinds of books. And what do you know, eight and a half months later, there she is. And she's in our arms. And in that picture, she's screaming her head off. You can't hear it through the picture. Uh, Our friend who was also named Sarah came and took pictures of us. And we're thinking this like idyllic scene. You know, the cute pictures with the baby and the flower next to it we're thinking it's gonna be like that no the baby screamed her head off the whole time and so Sarah just took pictures and they came out like that and they came out to be a wonderful kind of documentation of that moment we treasure those pictures well we were intimidated we were scared because we had a little girl in our arms and we wanted her to flourish we wanted her to have a good life and to do well in life we wanted to do well with what God had entrusted to us and if you've ever been a parent or been in any position of leadership over another person, I imagine that you have felt the same way. You felt the burden to want that person that you're leading or those people that you're leading to flourish. Teachers want their students to grow wise and strong and smart and to flourish, right? Factory managers want the factory floor humming with flourishing production. They want good, skilled workers who are doing a good job and enjoying their work. Ball coaches want their ball players to learn the skills and to flourish as ball players. Whatever position of leadership you're in, it is probably innate in you, it's probably resting there in you that you want the people that you are leading to flourish. We felt that burden that day, and I bet if you've ever led anyone, you felt that burden as well. well. What if I told you that in this book there is wisdom that can help you turn the place where you lead into a place of flourishing? The the workplace where you lead, or the home where you lead, or the schoolroom where you lead, or the church where you lead, or the committee that you lead. There's wisdom here that can help you turn it into a place of flourishing. And today we're going to look together at that, so I want to invite you to open your Bibles to 2 Samuel 23. If you don't have a Bible, grab the Pew Bible in front of you, start in the middle and flip back to page 246, and you'll find it there. And while you're turning, I'm going to tell you some of the context, like the story of what's gone on here. These words that we're going to read are King David's last words as he was dying. The Lord gave him a song and an oracle, a prophecy as he was dying and it was the last thing that he spoke now before this israel has had kind of really a rocky start they came into the promised land under joshua's leadership they were pretty faithful under joshua's leadership with some hiccups and then they were led by a series of judges and things kind of got worse and worse for each judge's reign and by the end of it they were really in shambles some really disgusting things were happening by the end of the judges period and the people were just crying out for a king because they they weren't following the Lord faithfully, they weren't very well led, and things just weren't going very well. So they cried out and cried out for a king, and eventually God gave them a king, and they got together and they celebrated that this strong and mighty man named Saul was going to be their king and he was mighty in battle and look how he could wield a sword and he's a head and shoulders taller than every one of us and they were so excited and Saul turned out to be a terrible king and things did not go well and so in the midst of all that letdown, their hearts are broken Saul dies in battle his sons die in battle as well and a young man named David takes the throne and this meek shepherd boy winds up being one of the greatest kings in history. He takes Israel from the shambles that it's in and builds it up into a flourishing kingdom, one of the greatest and strongest kingdoms the world has ever known, just in the second half of his lifetime. The people love him, the people fear him, the people want him to live forever. And now what's on their minds is, will there ever be another king like this? Because now David is dying. And so they're worried. They're concerned. Well, how can we know if the next king is as good as this king? Will the kingdom stay this strong under the next king? Will the next king follow the Lord? And what about the king after that? Now they're worried about secession and how this is going to work out. And in the midst of that insecurity, in the midst of that fear, David speaks these words. 2 Samuel 23. Now these are the last words of David. David the son of Jesse declares, the man who was raised on high declares, the anointed of the God of Jacob and the sweet psalmist of Israel. The spirit of the Lord spoke by me and his word was on my tongue. The God of Israel said, the rock of Israel spoke to me. He who rules over men righteously, who rules in the fear of God, Is as the light of the morning when the sun rises, a morning without clouds, when the tender grass springs out of the earth through the sunshine after rain. Truly is not my house so with God? For he has made an everlasting covenant with me, ordered in all things and secured. For all my salvation and all my desire, will he not indeed make it grow? But the worthless, every one of them will be thrust away like thorns, because they cannot be taken in hand. But the man who touches them must be armed with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they will be completely burned with fire in their place. These are the words of the Lord. So, the very last thing that David wants to teach us, the very last thing that he says, is that people flourish under God fearing leadership. People flourish under God-fearing leadership, and he wants us to know that that's a big deal. Let's look at the way that he says it here. You notice that the first two and a half verses, he still hasn't gotten to the actual content of what he's saying. Like, it's all like prologue, like intro stuff, for so long, right? Now, these are the last words of David, and you expect that the last words are coming next. Nope, then David, the son of Jesse, declares... The man who is raised on high declares, right? every sentence you read, every line you read, you're anticipating that something big is coming. And for eight lines, it builds up this anticipation. These are his last words, so they're really important. The Spirit of the Lord is resting on him, so these words are really important. The sweet psalmist of Israel said these words, so they're really important. All these devices that the author is putting in there to show us, these are important words. And then finally, about a third of the way through the oracle, we finally get to the content of it, and we are ready for it. We want to hear it, and the second half of verse 3 says, He who rules over men righteously, who rules in the fear of God, verse 4 says, is as the light of the morning when the sun rises, a morning without clouds, when the tender grass springs out of the earth through sunshine after rain. A beautiful, poetic image of what God-fearing, just, righteous leadership looks like it looks like grass sprouting out of the earth well here's what he means by that now spring is coming it's not here yet but maybe it got here today i don't know but it's tough to hold out hope what's going to happen here but spring is coming right and some of you have grass in your lawn and you own lawn mowers and you know what's going to happen one day very soon the wet grass will sit there in your lawn the temperature will get up to a certain point the sun will shine on that grass And those of you that own lawnmowers know what comes next, right? you got to go out and fire up that lawnmower because it is just coming up, right? When the conditions are there, when the soil is wet enough, when the sun shines on it, grass has a ton of potential. It just grows up and it flourishes. Under the right conditions, grass will flourish because it has tremendous potential. And those conditions are the absence of weeds, good water, and good sunshine shining down on it. Well, David is saying here that under the right conditions, people flourish, because people have tremendous potential, they're made in the image of God. Only he's saying that that condition for people to flourish is God-fearing leadership. And so a God-fearing leader will shine on his people like the sun shines on grass his or her people will rise up and flourish together, maybe even grow together, maybe become strong and righteous together, just like the grass does when it comes out of the ground when the sun is shining on it. So he leaves us with a beautiful picture of what it looks like when the people leading us fear the Lord. What a beautiful image. But here's where it really gets interesting. David is not the first person to say that. He adds a little bit to it, but he's not the first person to say that, hey, if you're in charge, if you're leading people, if you're in authority, the big thing you need to do is fear the Lord. That's actually a theme that is peppered throughout the Bible. We'll turn back to where it starts so I can show you where this begins. Flip back to Deuteronomy 17 if you have your Bibles with you. So the book of Deuteronomy was written as another telling of the law before the people of God went into the promised land, and pretty much everything written in the prophets refers back to Deuteronomy. Now, the Lord knew that a king was going to come up one day. Right, There was going to be a king one day, and he writes this 17th chapter full of laws for that king, all sorts of things the king must do and the things, can't, things that the king cannot do. And in verse 18, he says, Now it shall come about when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God. By carefully observing all the words of this law and these statutes, that his heart may not be lifted above his countrymen, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right or to the left, so that he and his sons may continue long in his kingdom in the midst of Israel. So long before there was ever a king, the Lord says, what I want kings to do when they sit on their throne, I want them to learn to fear me. This is the big thing I require of the kings in my kingdom. And so he tells them, as soon as you get there, the first thing you need to do, you need to write out a whole copy of the law. It's the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, write them all out on scrolls and keep those scrolls with you all the days of your life and read from it every day. Now, why would they need to to do that? Because by reading from it every day, he says, you'll learn to fear the Lord your God. And that's what I want of those in authority. I want them to fear me. If you do that, he says, you'll walk in all of my ways. And you won't lift up your heart above your countrymen, but you'll treat them well. And if you do those things in the fear of me, I will give you a long reign. And I will let your sons reign after you. So What's the core of this? What do kings need to learn to do? They need to learn to fear the Lord, and lo and behold, Saul comes along and he doesn't do those things, right? He doesn't walk in all the ways of the Lord, he doesn't hold his countrymen in high regard, the Lord takes the kingdom from his sons and takes the kingdom from him. David comes along, does walk in the fear of the Lord, does repent of his sins, does regard his countrymen highly, loves the Word, And so the Lord says, not only am I giving you a long reign, I'm giving you an everlasting kingdom of sons to reign after you. Part of that was because David learned the fear of the Lord because he trusted in the word of the Lord. So the big thing God wants of kings in Israel is to fear the Lord. But it's not just kings. This theme is peppered throughout leadership passages, all throughout the Bible. Some of you know the book of Exodus well, and you know the story of Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, coming in to meet with Moses, Moses is leading a million or so people through the desert, there's so many of them. Jethro comes and he does what good father-in-laws do, he gives him advice, and he says, uh, Moses, what you need to do, these people are too many for you. You need to kind of compartmentalize them, build a little hierarchy here, and appoint judges to rule sections of them so that they're not all coming to you with their needs and their complaints. And Moses says, okay, this is a good idea. But here's the funny thing. Jethro tells him specifically, look for God-fearing men to serve as judges over them. He even uses the phrase, God-fearing men. Centuries later, Jehoshaphat, the king, would be appointing judges as well in the kingdom. And as he's charging these judges, he says the very same thing. Let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Uh, Leadership gurus love the book of Nehemiah because Nehemiah has a lot to say about leadership. One thing we miss a lot of times is that in chapter 5, Nehemiah learns that the governors before him had abused the people under him. They put a really heavy burden on the people under them. And he sees this and he says... But I was not willing to oppress the people. And he says, why? Because of the fear of God, he says. And then he leaves the capital in the charge of two guys when he leaves. And he says specifically, I left it in this guy's charge because he fears the Lord. It's in the New Testament, too, when Jesus tells the parable of the unjust judge. Some of you know this parable. The widow comes before a judge with a request, and he won't listen to her. He keeps denying her. Well, the reason that you know that he's a wicked judge, if you've read that story, even though Jesus never says he's wicked, what he says is, there was a certain judge who neither feared God nor respected men. So you can see, all throughout the Bible, that theme is just peppered in there. God wants people in authority, He wants people in leadership to fear Him. That is His core requirement of those who are in leadership. So the ones who do fear him, he gives them wisdom and they're able to lead well. The ones who do fear him, they walk in all the Lord's ways, so they're walking in integrity. There are countless stories in the Bible of leaders who gained strong values because they were sitting at the feet of the Lord and they had great reverence for the Lord. Moses, Joshua, Peter, Paul, so many of these great leaders gained their values and the things that they loved about their ministries at the feet of a glorious Jesus, trembling in fear in his presence. And who doesn't want to be led by a person with integrity and wisdom who really believes in what they're doing? Who doesn't want to be led by a good person who knows what they're doing and believes in what they're doing? That's the kind of leader we're crying out for. How do you get that kind of leader? You learn to fear the Lord first. And so if you want the people that you lead to flourish, if you want over time to grow into that kind of leader who leads people to do well, The very first thing you must do and the thing you must dedicate yourself to for years and years is to learn the fear of the Lord. And so I hope you're asking, okay, Dave, what is the fear of the Lord and how do I learn about it, right? Well, let's look at that. The fear of the Lord is one of the Bible's terms for true wholehearted worship, you could say. Uh, It is very simply to tremble with joy before the Lord and marveling right like to see his glory and just marvel at him on one hand and on the other hand to walk in all of his ways The person who trembles with marvel before God and then walks in his ways that person fears the Lord. And so the way that that works is first God reveals his glory to you, right? The, The Israelites, for instance, after they walked through the Red Sea, you know, the Red Sea was parted, they walked through it, the Egyptian army came after them and the Lord crashed the sea down on the Egyptians. The text says that they looked back and they saw the waters crash, they saw the bodies of the Egyptians scattered across the seashore, and it says they feared before God, like they just trembled in reverence. If you can imagine what that sight would be like and seeing the Lord deliver you from your enemies in that way, just that trembling feeling of awe at what just happened. That's a taste of what the fear of the Lord is. Psalm 2 invites the kings of the earth to, it says, serve the Lord with fear, and then it says, rejoice with trembling. I think that's a very good way to explain what it feels like to fear the Lord. It's, it's to tremble, but it's to tremble with joy. You're not afraid of God, You're trembling with happiness, like when you watch a summer blockbuster on the screen and, like, the most amazing thing happens, and everyone in the theater is, like, slack-jawed, like, whoa, the building blew up, or whatever it was, you know, or wide-eyed. Like, that feeling of rejoicing with trembling, that's a little bit of what it is like to fear the Lord. And then... I mean, if you're looking to God with that kind of reverence and you're just saying, okay, you are God, you are the center of the universe, I am not the center of the universe, you are the one we should worship, you're offering your worship up to the Lord, you're going to want to walk in his ways, right? You're not going to want to go along in your own way. You're going to figure out that he's much wiser than anyone else, that he made the world, that he is God. And if you've got that reverence for him, you're going to want to walk in his ways. So the one who fears the Lord trembles with reverence before God, and then walks in His ways. Now, the trouble with this can be that the Lord has not shown us some of the things that He showed the rest of Israel. Like you, didn't, you didn't get to see the waters parted in the Red Sea and then come crashing back together. You, you didn't get to see Jesus risen from the dead. And so how can, how can you develop that sense of trembling reverence before God? Well, I think that's why this text in Deuteronomy says that the king has to make a copy of God's words and read it all the days of his life, because you didn't get to see those things. Maybe you'll see awesome things in your life, but maybe you won't, but no matter what you see, you can read about the amazing things that the Lord has done, and so if you're sitting today, resolving, okay, I wanna learn to fear the Lord, that reverence he's talking about, I wanna have that, I wanna tremble with joy before God, you've got to open this book and read from it every day, and let the book show you how incredible God is so that you will tremble before him. Let the book show you his ways so that you can walk in them. Now this is why you hear me say all the time that the Lord wrote this book, to show you his glories and teach you his ways. That's why I say that, because the Lord wrote this book to teach us to fear him. So if you want to grow as a leader, Read from this book every day. Get yourself in a church where the Word is preached, where you're walking out on Sunday saying, yep, the text says exactly what he said. Yep, I've got to do what this text says. That kind of church. Get yourself there every week and hear the Word preached. Read from the Word every day so that you can grow in the fear of the Lord. So that's the message some of us need to hear. Some of us are burdened with authority. And we need to hear that the Lord wants us to fear him, especially when we are in leadership. But I wonder if some of you, when you hear this, instead, it, it breaks your heart. Uh, I wonder if some of you hear a word like that, that people flourish under God-fearing leadership. And you say to yourself, I wish that my husband would hear this message. Right? I, I wish that my boss were the kind of leader that David is talking about here. I wish that our political leaders, I wish that the the news anchors who are telling me with authority what has gone on today, I wish these people feared the Lord, because maybe now you finally see what is missing in leadership all around us, what is missing in so many fathers, missing in so many husbands, missing in so many pastors and committee chairs and news anchors and politicians all over the place. What's missing is a reverent fear for God, and so we look around and we say, God, how we cry out for good leadership. And maybe some of you in your own personal lives are crying out right now for good leadership. Well, if you feel that way, I I want you to know that that's the way Israel felt when they read these words. Remember, some of you know what happens after David dies, right? Solomon reigns follows the Lord for a while, then he falls away, and after that, the kings kind of get worse and worse from there. They don't really follow the Lord, and by the end of things, the kingdom's in shambles. It's in exile. The people don't even live in Jerusalem anymore, and things have totally fallen apart because they didn't have God-fearing kings. Those are the people that are looking back and reading these words. Can you imagine their heartbreak when they read that people would have been flourishing if only their kings had feared the Lord? Well, I think that is why verse 5 is in there. Verse 5 says, Truly is not my house so with God, for he has made an everlasting covenant with me. So he says with confidence, God has made an everlasting covenant with me forever. I know that in eternity future, our people will have a leader who fears the Lord over them. And they're reading this thinking, wait, we're in exile under a Persian king. What are you you talking about? We don't have God, we have Nebuchadnezzar over us right now. We don't have God-fearing leadership. And so they're crying out, God, send us a king again, like David, send us a king who fears the Lord. But you know what? God had something even better for them. He didn't send them a king who feared the Lord. He sent them the Lord himself as king to come and rule over them. And so if you right now are crying out for good leadership and you're longing for the day when we have God-fearing congressmen and God-fearing news anchors and a God-fearing president, you just want God-fearing leadership in the church and in the country and in your work life and at home. If you were crying out for that, the Lord says the same thing for you. You want a leader who fears the Lord. He says, I, the Lord, myself, Am coming to lead you. I will be there. I will bring my recompense with me. I will have a crown with me to place on the head of my people, and I will rule you myself. And when you do, he says, we will flourish as a kingdom. So hold out hope, church. Jesus is coming. The Lord himself is coming to lead us. If your heart aches for good leadership, you will get it one day. So we've talked then about about what this means for us as leaders and what it means for the church, right? For us as leaders, we must learn the fear of the Lord. Uh, As the church, the church must wait for the Lord Himself to come lead us in a good, flourishing way. Uh, But let me talk for a minute about what this means for Calvary. Uh, What does this mean for us as a church? You know, one of our great needs here, and I've heard many of you articulate this, is what some people call leadership succession. Uh, In other words, we have strong lay leadership right now. We have people who have stepped up to lead committees who didn't necessarily want to lead those committees, but they did step up, and they're doing a good job leading those committees. We have people who have stepped into leading the choir and leading the children's ministry and leading all sorts of things, doing it out of a love for others, and I I think in the reverence of the Lord, uh, in a way that sustained us through a very difficult season for quite a while. And we owe those leaders a great debt of thanks for getting us through this season and the few seasons before us. But what we don't have is a rising generation to take the baton from those people when they decide that their time is done. Uh, And that's what we've gotta raise up, right? Many of you have said this to me, and I agree, and I'll say it right back to you. What we need to focus on right now is the raising up of leaders. We need future leaders here and the church. And so, to be honest with you about where the Lord has been leading me, uh, I think if I do everything else poorly, I have to do two things really well. I have to preach really well, pray for me in that, I need the Lord's help with that, and I have to take the initiative to raise up God-fearing leaders so that we have a long string, a long line of leaders who fear the Lord. That's what we need, and this text speaks to that because it tells us what kind of leaders we need to raise up. Because we can look for all different kind of leaders. And the church is plagued with this sense, I don't mean our church, I mean the whole worldwide church, is plagued with this sense that we need the coolest, most charming, most snazzy people in the world to lead us. Like we need these like super rock stars with a knack for drawing a crowd and a really good ability to work the crowd. Like We need those cool people for lack of a better word to lead us and the lord says actually no that's that's not the kind of people you need to be looking for and for too long the church has suffered crying out for leaders with the the coolest personality or the greatest qualities that we need and the lord says no i want you in the hands of humble meek even weak people who fear me and walk in my ways guys the church does not need charismatic guys with a knack for drawing a crowd and the ability to build up a false following in this building. What the church needs is men who fear God to lead them. Men who stand before him and tremble with joy and say, Jesus Christ, you are great and I will worship you. The church needs men who insist that we do everything God's way because we walk in integrity before him and we follow his words. We need men and we need women who lead us in this way. So that's the kind of people that we're going to try to raise up as a church. We're not going to try to raise up the coolest leaders we can find or the savviest leaders we can find. We hope to equip them with good wisdom and good skills, but we want to raise up leaders who fear the Lord God. We're going to devote ourselves to that probably for five or ten years trying to raise up those kind of leaders, but what kind will they be? They will be leaders who fear the Lord. So let's pray right now and ask God for that.